a fugitive who was compared to an infamous check forger who inspired a Steven Spielberg movie has been caught. That and more coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the arrest of Julian Rutland, a 34-year-old male fraud suspect who until Tuesday had eluded authorities up and down the I-4 corridor for more than a half decade. Later, in our Only in Florida segment, I'll discuss the capture of an Edgewater man who authorities say ran away from his first targeted victim after she stood up to him, but wound up victimizing a 72-year-old woman who tried to help him. And finally, in our Looking Back segment, we'll examine a 32-year-old murder case that resulted in an overturned verdict and death sentence in 2014. The state, in spite of having its original case scrutinized and criticized, is seeking the death penalty against the same defendant again in a trial scheduled for January. My special guest for that segment will be Florida criminal attorney Marty McLean and former Tampa Bay Times reporter and columnist Dan DeWitt. I will talk about the Florida Sheriff's Office's big fugitive arrest after the break. The suspect who authorities throughout Florida have been chasing for five years, the guy the Volusia County Sheriff's Office compared to Frank Abagnale, the ex-international check forger whose story spawned the film Catch Me If You Can, has been caught. Julian Rutland, who lifted credit card information to steal hundreds of thousands of dollars, was nabbed while standing in line at a Deltona Walmart on Tuesday. Detectives learned that the 34-year-old Rutland had been frequenting that store during the past couple weeks, so they circulated a photo among employees. When one of those employees spotted Rutland, the sheriff's office was called, and a pack of detectives, some in plain clothes, responded to the store and came upon Rutland standing in the checkout line. Here is Lieutenant Brian Henderson describing to the News Journal Rutland's reaction when he got caught. Um, it was one of those gotcha moments um, when uh, the detective uh, put his hands on, on this bad guy. He asked him uh, who he was and he looked at him and said, you're, I'm who you're looking for. Rutland has been a fugitive for five years and has committed a variety of fraud-related crimes in various counties. Investigators have estimated that Rutland has been responsible for roughly a half million dollars in fraud, and that's only in Volusia County. He has warrants dating back to 2012 in Pasco and Hillsborough counties, and he was caught on camera as a suspect in a 2014 mail theft case in Flagler. 
Butler County. Rutland, according to detectives, has used stolen credit cards to pay the balance on other credit cards so he could stretch the line of credit. He has purchased cars with stolen credit, and he's suspected of having at least five of them. He regularly uses prepaid phones and discards them, which has contributed to him eluding law enforcement all this time. Last year, he targeted several victims in Deleon Springs, including a local pathologist who told the news journal in May that she realized she had her identity stolen when she received a bill in the mail from Capital One totaling $21,000. Detectives said Rutland stole a credit card application out of the woman's mailbox and used it at several retail chains from Sanford to Daytona Beach. Henderson said he's convinced Rutland had help carrying out his schemes. He is not, um, he's not, was not involved in this by himself. We are continuing this investigation. It's far from over. Um, we do expect making other arrests. It may take us some time, but this is a vast um, fraud that we've, we've identified, and there's other counties that are involved that also have charges. And uh, Just because he's going to jail tonight doesn't mean that our work is, is even close to being done. In spite of an arrest record that goes back to 2001, Rutland has never spent time in a Florida prison. He was arrested in 2011 in the area of Port Ritchie by the Pasco Sheriff's Office on organized fraud and other charges related to an elaborate Internet scam. The state attorney's office did not prosecute Rutland in that case. Coming up details of a violent carjacking involving an elderly woman near Orlando. Orange County Sheriff's deputies said Todd Erskine of Edgewater tried and failed to carjack a woman outside a Home Depot near Orlando. According to reports, Erskine soon found a more compliant victim, a 72-year-old woman in the nearby parking lot in front of Fancy Fruit. Erskine took that victim's blue Toyota minivan and deputies caught up to him on Hiawassee Road near the East-West Expressway. After a deputy forced the 43-year-old Erskine to crash the stolen vehicle, he was ordered at gunpoint to get out and was apprehended without a fight. The elderly woman who was carjacked had injuries all over her body. Deputies said she had blood on her face and open wounds on her arms, legs, and stomach, and a large bruise on her right forearm. A family member told the local media she also suffered a broken shoulder. The victim, whose name was redacted from Erskine's arrest report, told authorities that the suspect approached her and told her his child was sick and that he needed her car. The woman insisted she could help him, but he continued to tell her to get out of the vehicle. Then he pulled a gun on her. The victim said Erskine told her, quote, I need you to help me. If you don't, I'm going to shoot you. She started driving Erskine around for 10 minutes, and she turned whenever Erskine told her to turn. When she came upon a stop sign at Elm Drive, he ordered her again to get out. Then he pistol-whipped her in the face. From the passenger seat, Erskine opened the driver's side door, moved over to the center council, and pushed the woman out of the van. She pleaded with him to stop, 
but Erskine got into the driver's seat and began driving, while the 72-year-old victim was still clinging to the van. She was dragged, but eventually she let go, and Erskine made a left turn and sped away. Here is the victim's daughter talking to WFTV Channel 9 Eyewitness News in Orlando about the carjacking. She just was being nice and she was trying to help um, someone and it backfired on her. Authorities said Erskine's first victim thwarted his attempt to steal her car by throwing her keys out of her window and far away from Erskine. Then she told Erskine to go fetch the keys himself. She did this while Erskine was pointing a gun at her. Then she grabbed a nearby shopping cart and shoved it toward the suspect while shouting for help. Erskine fled and went to another parking lot, where authorities said he encountered the elderly victim. Erskine was charged with carjacking, aggravated abuse of an elderly person with a firearm, aggravated battery with a firearm, and armed kidnapping. He remains jailed in Orange County and is being held without bail. Erskine has pleaded not guilty to all charges. Coming up, a look back at a 1985 murder case in Hernando County in which the defendant is facing the death penalty for the third time. 32 years ago on Wednesday, the nude and decomposing corpse of Ronzetti Cox was found inside the trunk of her Chevrolet sedan, which had been stuck in a wooded area near Finch Road in Royal Highlands, a rural community in western Hernando County near US-19, a main drag that runs north and south along Florida's Gulf Coast. Forensic experts surmise the victim's body had been there for four days, roasting in the 90-degree heat. One year later, Paul Hildwin, who earlier in his life had served time in prison for raping two women in New York State, was convicted of Cox's murder. Jurors took little time to convict him and were unanimous in their recommendation for the death penalty. The judge, R.L. Hustetler, carried out that sentence, and Hildwin spent the next 29 years on death row. He was moved from death row after his verdict was overturned by the Florida Supreme Court as a result of more modernized DNA testing. More on that in a moment. For now, Hildwin is in a Brooksville jail awaiting trial again for Cox's murder. The state attorney's office, for the third time, is pursuing the death penalty against Hildwin. His new trial is scheduled to begin January 29, 2018. Forensic test results, as well as testimony from eyewitnesses and a jailhouse informant, were used to convict Hildwin in 1986. The same evidence was used to sentence him to death a second time during a resentencing hearing 10 years later. The case required a lot of blanks to be filled. The prosecutor at the time, Tom Hogan, admitted that fact during his opening argument. He told jurors his intention of stacking bricks of circumstantial evidence that would need to be held together by the mortar of their common sense. 
Attorneys who represented Hildwin during the long appellate process said they discovered several holes in the state's case. They also accused the state of intentionally blocking the defense's attempts to uncover exculpatory evidence, a legal term that is applied to evidence favorable to the defendant. The lawyer who has spent the most time defending Hildwin post-trial is Marty McLean, a South Florida attorney who is a specialist in death penalty cases. McLean talked to me about confirmation bias, a diagnosis he relied on to explain the state's determination to seek the death penalty again. Confirmation bias um, uh, occurs when once you have a theory as to how something happens, you only see that which supports it and you are sort of blinded, um, you blind yourself almost to um, seeing things that are inconsistent with that theory or or, or really being able to analyze anything. And, and police officers and prosecutors um, really become locked in. Um, it, it's always amazing to me that uh, no matter what, they become convinced that well, they've got a guilty verdict. Hernando's Royal Highlands, located about 70 miles north of St. Petersburg, remains a rural community today. But in 1985, it was very sparsely populated. Other than Wikiwachi Springs, the famous roadside attraction that features live mermaids, there was little going on in that vicinity beyond some random mudbogging. On the night of September 8, 1985, Hildwin's car ran out of gas on US-19 after he had left a drive-in movie theater where he and two other females watched Clint Eastwood's Pale Rider. He told Hernando County Sheriff's detectives that he began a long walk to the nearest gas station by himself and stuck his thumb out to every passing motorist in an effort to hitch a ride. Somebody did pull over. It was a woman in a green Chevy. It was Franzetti Cox. Detectives concluded that Cox picked up Hildwin sometime after midnight on her way to a laundromat near High Point, located about five miles southeast of where Hildwin's car had stalled. Soon thereafter, according to investigators, Hildwin raped and beat the victim, drove her to a wooded area near his dad's house, killed her, and then stuffed her body in the trunk. Based on the state's timeline, Hildwin would have needed to do all of that in about 90 minutes. According to the story Hildwin gave, Cox was actually accompanied that night by her boyfriend, William Haverty. The pair fought incessantly. At one point, Haverty, whom Hildwin knew a little bit, got physical with Cox. Uncomfortable and fed up, Hildwin, who had no money on him, stole Cox's checkbook and split. One of Cox's pearl rings was tucked inside the checkbook. The undisputed evidence in the case is that Hildwin did cash one of Cox's checks at a bank the morning of September 9th. A search of his house also uncovered Cox's ring. He also was in possession of some of her other possessions, including a radio. A witness identified Hildwin as the person who cashed the forged check, and she also told detectives that the car he drove to the bank looked a lot like Cox's vehicle. McLean, 
through his numerous court filings, stated the defense was unaware of many pertinent details. Or in some cases, the defense did learn about something, but didn't have adequate time to prepare for it. Defense counsel Daniel Lewan had no experience trying a murder case. He was an emergency appointee public defender and was barely out of law school. There also was the short timeline for the murder. There was Haverty's temper and history of abuse against Cox. There was an eyewitness who said he saw Cox at a bar roughly 12 hours after the time the state said Cox was murdered. That eyewitness was one of Cox's relatives. There were the sheriff's reports that the defense never knew about. There was Haverty's interview with law enforcement during which he was behaving suspiciously, something that was written in a report that was never presented to the defense prior to trial. There was also a handwritten note left in Cox's home written by Haverty that read, off and die. The defense was told about the note, but it was never given to them. It seemed to be gone forever until a 1992 evidentiary hearing in which the detective who worked the case had it lying on top of a box of paperwork that he had brought with him to trial. The box had been sitting in his garage for years. The defense tried to paint a picture of a deteriorating relationship between Cox and Haverty, one that could have come to a violent end. That note, according to the defense, would have been clear evidence of that deterioration. Then there was a jailhouse informant, one who claimed he heard Hildwin tell him that he had stabbed Cox, which he told jurors while on the stand. Only Cox was strangled, and her body showed no signs of a stab wound. The same informant, who was in jail awaiting trial for a grand theft charge, was released from jail five days after Hildwin's trial, and he got probation. Coincidentally or not, Hogan was the appointed prosecutor in that informant's case, and Hofstetter was the judge. But in the end, the coup de grace for the state, the piece of evidence that resulted in the overturned conviction, was the laundry found in the back seat of Cox's car. A pair of panties intertwined with a rolled-up pair of shorts had traces of semen. A nearby washcloth had traces of saliva. That came from the same person. During the trial in 1986, the state's argument, which was backed up by an FBI forensic analyst that the defense didn't know about until the last business day before the start of the trial, was that the fluids on both the panties and washcloth were from a non-secretor, basically someone whose blood type can't be traced through other bodily fluids. It was believed that non-secretors made up only 11% of the world's population. The state said Hildwin was a non-secretor, and Haverty was not. Seventeen years later, a private company compared the DNA on the laundry items to Hildwin, and the results came back negative. The Florida Attorney General's office blocked attempt after attempt to compare those samples to Haverty's DNA. In 2011, the Florida Supreme Court ruled to have those tests conducted. Later that year, tests showed the samples did, in fact, match Haverty's DNA. 
Here is former Tampa Bay Times reporter and columnist Dan DeWitt talking about the length of time it took for that DNA to be tested. I remember there were several trials, took several tries to even get them to test him or to put it through the statewide database, which seemed, I mean, why, why stall on that? You would seem, if you're really interested in who was, who did this, you would have wanted it to be reviewed. More than two years later, Hildwin's conviction and death sentence were overturned by the same court. In its written ruling, the majority pointed out the irony that the evidence the state relied upon so heavily in 1986, referred to in the ruling as, quote, a significant pillar of the state's case, wound up being the very same evidence that benefited the defense the most. There is also this fact. Haverty was convicted and sentenced to prison in 1998 on sexual battery charges. The 54-year-old sex offender was released from prison a year ago after serving almost 19 years. One of the prosecutors in the upcoming trial, Rich Buxman, who was 10 years old when the Cox murder took place, declined to do a recorded interview for this podcast. But he did tell me on the record that he and his co-counsel, Bill Cato, are preparing for a full-blown trial that could take two to three weeks. He said he's preparing for it the same way as any other trial, regardless of the amount of time that has passed by. He plans to get acclimated with all of the witnesses, which could include one or more of Cox's family members, and start from scratch. Buxman told me that if he wasn't confident in his case against Hildwin, he wouldn't be pursuing it. DNA evidence has cleared at least two dozen death row inmates in Florida since the early 1970s, which according to the Death Penalty Information Center, is more than any other state, a fact noted in a story DeWitt wrote in 2014, after Hildwin's conviction and sentence were overturned. DeWitt told me that he thinks the case has had many blemishes. I think he should have gotten a new trial a long, long time ago uh, because of, there were so many things that the, uh, that the defense was not aware of. So it seemed clear it was either um, insufficient counsel or, uh, or some sort of prosecutorial misconduct. It was clearly a flawed, uh, flawed case. You know, really, really flawed, and I'm not going out on a limb because the uh, Florida Supreme Court said the same thing. During his three-plus decades behind bars following the cock slaying, Hildwin has survived a cancer battle, as well as endured two death sentences and the ups and downs of a winding, drawn-out appeals process. If convicted and sentenced to death again, a new clock will start ticking for his next appeal. Hildwin, who is now 57 years old, has served more than 30 years for the Coxlang and still faces a death sentence if he's convicted again. If he is indeed guilty and acquitted at his next trial after what could be a significantly shakier case against him in terms of the evidence, it still means he has served more than three decades behind bars, with close to 90% of that time in solitary confinement. 
That's a pretty far cry from scot-free. McLean, predictably, had hoped the state would pack it in. No one would feel any sense of triumph after it's over, regardless of the outcome. Even the experience of seeing an overturned verdict didn't put the defendant or his former attorney in a celebratory mood. Not after the way everything has dragged on. Here is McLean explaining what he and Hildwin felt on that day, three years ago, when they found out about the ruling. Finally, yeah, this is great, but at the same time, it's like, but I knew this 22 years ago, and nobody would do anything. So, yes, it, it, there, there is a good feeling, there's something that's good, but it's also mixed with this... But why does it take so long? I will give an update on the Hildwin case after the trial, which is expected to conclude by mid-February. Thank you for listening. Next week, I'll re-examine the horrifying 2003 case of an Altamont Springs father, a former Ivy League basketball star, who killed his two-year-old daughter at a Maitland pond and then killed his eight-year-old son during a murder-suicide on I-4 in Lake Mary. My guest for that segment will be former Lake Mary Police Chief Richard Berry. See you then. You can find Tony on Twitter at TonyCrimeWriter or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.